You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Welcome to this episode on Tudor Tombs. I'm your host, Rebecca. On today's show, I'm joined by the fascinating historian, Dr. Kirsten Clayton Yardley. And today we talk about Tudor tombs. We talk about how they were created, who designed them, who paid for them, what happened to the tomb that Henry VIII was supposed to have. We look at a comparison between Henry Fitzroy and Arthur Tudor. There's so much going on in this episode that I can't wait for you to hear it. So, Kirsten, welcome back. Uh, Thank you for having me on again. I'm so excited because today you're here to talk to us about tombs, Tudor tombs, tombs in general, and it's perfect for this time of year. And I want to get started with some ideas that I had because I think of Elizabeth I, Henry VII, Elizabeth of York, Margaret Beaufort. These are just a few names really that come to mind for me when I think of memorable Tudor era tombs. And... They're so memorable because of the amazing detail that's on them. And I'm fascinated by them. And the most remarkable thing about tombs is that in some cases, it really is the only image that we have from these people in history. So what is it that brought you into researching tombs? So I uh, got into tombs uh, when I was doing my uh, PhD and I'd come at it a little bit more uh, generally in material culture. I think it's fair to say uh, at master's level, I'd look a bit. I'd looked a bit more broadly at a particular uh, gentry family, and I'd been looking at uh, what they were spending their money on as one of the things that I was looking at, sort of broadly within their household. So I touched a little bit there on uh, things like art and commemoration that they were spending their money on. And then when I was looking for PhD funding, I came across a project uh, that was specifically looking at the Dukes of Norfolk and the way that they were commemorated through their tombs, through their funerals, uh, through epitaphs, and how that kind of fitted into what other noblemen were doing at the same time. And it sort of seemed to lead on from some of the interests that I developed during my master's studies. Uh, so I applied for that funding and uh, I got the funding. So uh, then I dived fully into tombs and funerals and other forms of commemoration. Uh, I have so many questions now already. We're getting started. I don't know which direction I want to go, but maybe since you mentioned household um, purchases in the such, let's maybe we should start out with who paid for these tombs? Was it the person who was actually put in them? Was it their family? Who took care of that part of it? It actually varies uh, between individuals, between families. You do get some people who make all the arrangements in their lifetime. Uh, some of them to the extent that building their tombs in their lifetime. So uh, the third Duke of Norfolk, he doesn't finish his tomb in his lifetime because he gets arrested but up until that point he is actually paying for designing arranging the building of his tomb while he's still alive so that's someone who's doing it during their lifetime some people like his father the second duke of norfolk have started the process of design and choosing uh i probably call it the contractor but you know the mason the sculptor who's going to be working 
on the tomb and putting everything in place, but then he's putting in his will, you know, the amount of money that it's going to cost. You then get other people who they're leaving the arrangements a bit later, so they're writing in their will to their executors, please have a tomb made, you know, in this church with the image of me on it. And then finally you get people where it's, uh, they are paying for a tomb for a member of their family who's already died. So going back to the third Duke of Norfolk, when he's making the arrangements and paying for his own tomb, he's also arranging for a tomb for his son-in-law, Henry Fitzroy, Henry VIII's illegitimate son. And you get some people will do it quite soon after a person's died. Sometimes you'll have a family doing it a generation or so later. Uh, There's a family in Oxfordshire, I think, the Fetter Place family. Uh, They're a gentry family. And in the early 17th century, they pay for a very unusual, it's sort of a three-stack memorial with three effigies kind of on platforms one above each other uh almost like they're on on shelves um and that's paid for all in one go in the 17th century with effigies of three generations going back through the 16th century that's amazing (laughs) they were pieces of artwork really yes they are they're incredibly elaborate pieces of artwork and yeah so how it's approached varies and the problem in some ways you have is if you care deeply about what you want your artwork, what you want your sculpture to look like, the only way you can actually guarantee that you will get what you want is if you're paying for it and getting the work in progress while you're still alive. Because obviously after that point, you're reliant on people carrying through your requests. Uh, And for various reasons, that doesn't always happen. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned to the the sculptors, or I think you called them the contractors. I'm really intrigued by this because, like I said, these are pieces of art. Do you know, were there well-known tomb artists during this time that people wanted? Was there like a run on a whole bind of tombs? Again, uh, you see variations. sort of across time obviously we're talking we're talking through the Tudor period that's quite a long time period and around the country so I I said contractors it's kind of the modern term for it because there wasn't really a trade of you know tomb carver as a job title there were people who specialized in tombs increasingly so but they would also do other types of work as well um so going back to your question about big names there are some big names you've got people like and I'm sorry to any Italian speakers that listen to you um <laughs> uh, Pietro Torrigiano who does Henry VII's tomb and Henry VIII looks at using him to make his own tomb but doesn't in the end uh towards the end of the 17th century end of the 16th century into the 17th century you have Maximilian Holt and he makes the memorial that's put up for Elizabeth I and he also works on a lot of noble tombs at that kind of transition period into the 17th century so those are some big foreign origin sculptors coming in 
within England, what you find is that there are people and there's workshops around the country and some of them we can identify the, the artisans, the craftsmen by name because we do have surviving contracts and plans for some tombs and then on that basis you can look at that work and then you can go and look at other tombs and see sort of stylistic sim similarities or kind of little quirks in the way they do particular designs or ways that they do effigies which uh, carry on sort of around an area so people are able to study them and go oh yes you know we don't have a contract or a signature but sort of looking at this together we think that this is the body of work of a particular person or a particular workshop and you'll find um, relative sort of regional groupings going on so there's a man called Richard Parker who is quite a well-known alabaster worker, a sculptor working in um, alabaster, and he's based in the Midlands, sort of mid-16th century onwards, and there's a whole selection of tombs in that Midland area of England which have been attributed to him either concretely with documentary evidence or on a stylistic basis. The problem we have sometimes with these craftsmen is for a lot of them, we, we have their name. We might know a few bits and pieces, sort of birth, marriage, death, if we can find them in parish records. We might be able to piece together a body of work, but it doesn't. we don't really have a full life biography for them. Sort of beyond that, you couldn't sort of write down a full life story outside of their work hmm. for a lot of them. That's a um, shame. It really is. They, I mean, there are some just gorgeous tombs out there. And, and I do want to touch base with you a little bit because I keep talking about how their artwork, but what kind of things were generally included on tombs? If somebody's going to go out and start looking at tombs, what is it that they can gain from looking at them? Can they pick up little bits of history that maybe they didn't know otherwise? So I'm going to talk specifically here on tombs of the nobility. There's, there is variation if you're looking at memorials made for people with other kind of social backgrounds. And there's a sort of general interest on noble tombs in displaying your heraldry, so your ancestry, uh, your lineage, your status as well, and sort of you in an appropriate appearance. Uh, so sort of going back through that, uh, you will commonly expect to find on noble tombs heraldry. A uh, coat of arms is quite standard, sort of large lozenges, or if for the women generally, or you'll have the shields uh, with their coat of arms. You might also have badges, the tomb of the uh, fourth, Earl of Northumberland, which is in Beverly Minster, has the his sort of livery type badges, heraldic badges, over his coat of arm instead of his coat of arms. And you will sometimes find the supporters. So a heraldic coat of arms in its full form has a helmet and crest and sort of supporting animals to each side. 
So some tombs will include supporting animals somewhere. Sometimes the men, their heads will be resting on the helmet and the crest. You will find people who were in the Order of the Garter will usually be depicted wearing the garter collar with the garter at their knee, probably the cloak as well with the garter badge on their shoulder. Early in the 16th century, sort of end of the 15th century into the early 16th century, you might get uh, the Lancastrian collar of S's. Still appears in a few cases. So uh, John, Lord Cheney, who is one of essentially Henry VII's bodyguards at the Battle of Bosworth, his effigy has the Lancastrian S's collar on it. Coronets turn up, so uh, dukes and have coronets, a ducal coronet, so you see that appears on the tomb of the third Duke of Norfolk. Uh, you also see it, I think uh, the Fitzroy tomb, and I think the fourth Duke of Norfolk have the coronets sort of appear over their coat of arms, if I remember correctly. And then in terms of dress, you see the men will usually be depicted in armour during this period uh, for the noblemen. The women, you've kind of got the Tudor dress, you've got headdresses, they might have uh, girdles with books or sort of tokens on the end of them. So from a historical point of view, they are very valuable and have been valuable for a long time for their evidence in terms of clothing, changes in fashion, sort of changes in armour, headdresses, shoes, because you've got this carved in often quite a lot of detail, even down to the patterning and the embroidery you might have on clothes. And then for family, and the heraldry was valued at the time. Um, so there was a proclamation, probably more than one in Elizabeth's reign, when people were destroying religious images, it was running over into people were attacking tombs as well. And in the proclamation saying, you know, stop attacking tombs, one of the things that they picked up on that they were concerned about was that you were losing valuable history about families because tombs with their heraldry and sort of records of names were, people, were sort of the lineage of your gentry families, your noble families. And they were concerned about the loss of that information even back in the 16th century. You mentioned Elizabeth I and the stuff that happened during her reign. What happened to some of the less fortunate tombs during the dissolution of the monasteries? A lot of them get either destroyed, lost, or sold off. Uh, it's common to find common, uh, relatively common in England to find um, brasses, for example, in parish churches around the country where the back of the brass has an older memorial on it. And a lot of those have been bought up from the religious houses when they're dissolved and then people have reused them. And you get that a little bit with other elements of tombs. So there is a tomb in Hurstmanso Parish Church, which is in Sussex, which is supposed to represent 
Thomas Fiennes, who was Lord Dacre of the South, and his son. But when they were looking at the effigies on that uh, at a later date, they discovered that the heraldry sort of underneath the paint was actually the heraldry for Lord Who, who died in, died in 1455 and had had a tomb at Battle Abbey. And then obviously when the abbey was dissolved, they'd sold off these effigies and had been brought up to be used for this new later memorial. So that happens to some tombs. Some people do attempt to save their family memorials. The third Duke of Norfolk, he tries to get Thetford Priory turned into a parish church or a collegiate establishment. And one of the things that he says when he's writing Henry VIII about this is that, you know, this is the place where I'm building the tomb for myself and your son. He doesn't get his way in that case. Thetford Priory is dissolved. It becomes a ruin. And he moves his own tomb and Fitzroy's tomb out and they end up at Framlingham Parish Church, which is fairly easy because they were in pieces, we think, still being constructed. But the other tombs that were at the Abbey, we know that they've been lost uh, because we know that there were tombs to members of the Mowbray family who were Dukes of Norfolk before the Howards and they haven't survived and been moved. And you get a similar story in various other families where some people will choose to move some of their ancestors' tombs to new locations, but others just are lost to us now. Oh, that's so sad. I think of all the times that I see images of tombs where um, the person that it's representing is missing their nose. How does that happen? That is largely a matter of time and how tombs have been viewed and treated over the centuries. Obviously, things like noses, fingers, points of daggers, little statues on the side, these are things that are easy to knock. So you get a mix of deliberate damage, which is often linked with iconoclasm, so it's attacks on religious imagery or things that are perceived as religious imagery. And you get waves of that in the 16th century uh, linked to the Reformation. You also get it taking place in the 17th century as well. And then there's just accidental damage over time. Uh, You know, (laughs) churches aren't always kept in a good state of repair. If you're looking at church history, they go through periods where they get into ruined estates, they have to be repaired, so you might have just things falling into the church building, damaging them, or people are going to repair stuff and in the process accidentally knock something nearby. So there's all sorts of ways that um, you can get the small incidental damage taking place. You do also get graffiti. If you look at a lot of uh, 16th century tombs, you'll see They've been graffitied over the centuries. And there's an interesting conservation debate, which tips into some of the other work I do, as to whether you should repair this type of damage. Should you take uh, something that's been knocked off and 
reattach it? Should you, if you've completely lost an element of a tomb, should you rebuild it completely and put in a replacement element? And a lot of the time, the attitude, certainly in England today, is not hugely in favour of completely rebuilding an element and putting it onto the tomb if you've lost the part completely. So there's not really any drive to go back through and put noses back on, for example. <laughs> right. Well, that, I guess that makes sense because you still want to keep the integrity of the tomb. So if something was damaged recently and you still have the piece, I could see reattaching that. But I guess I, I see the mindset of maybe why you wouldn't want to do a rebuild or a bigger restoration project on them. Yeah, and it, it's something that's changed in attitude. So in the past, there have been restorations and repaintings of tombs, sort of different generations preceding us. So it's a little bit of a mix as to whether things have had repair work done or not. <laughs> one of the one of the tombs that you've mentioned a couple times that I definitely want to touch base on, because I looked at the post that you did on the Henry Fitzroy tomb, and that one, when I looked at the image of it, it kind of reminded me of Arthur Tudor's tomb as far as how it's shaped. Arthur's tomb was more just rectangular. There wasn't an image of him on top of it. And Fitzroy's looks exactly the same. Is there a reason maybe why there wasn't an image of them on top of the tomb? That's an interesting question. The uh, So the rectangular nature is, to a certain extent, the general trend in noble tomb construction at the time when those tombs were being built so the rectangular tomb with heraldic panels down the side has quite a long pedigree sort of through from I think it's sort of the mid 13th century well into the 16th century and even you still see it continuing beyond the end of the 16th century, even as if you, even as you get new forms of tomb coming through. So that element of the tombs, it's not really a surprise that they're similar. Uh, you can find similar-looking tombs across lots of England. The lack of effigy for um, Henry Fitzroy, I think, is tied up with the history of his tomb. There's a very disruptive process to constructing that tomb. Ooh, tell us more. <laughs> so it's it's tied up with the Duke of Norfolk's career. So the Duke of Norfolk is building uh, in the 1530s a, a pair of tombs, one for Fitzroy, one for him. And as far as we can tell, they were due to work together as a set. So the Duke of Norfolk, uh, his tomb now, it has full-length statues of Old Testament figures and it's got effigies on top of it. The Henry Fitzroy tomb has heraldry around the edge and it's got a frieze of images from the Old Testament. We also have various bits and pieces that were dug up at Thetford Priory and so the thought is that it was intended to have bust figures on the um, tomb of Henry Fitzroy and to have frieze panels on the tomb of the Duke of Norfolk. 
what's a freeze panel? Uh, so sort of the rectangular panels where you have a scene carved in relief. So around Henry Fitzroy's tomb, you've got images from the Old Testament. So you've got uh, Lot and his daughters being turned into pillars of salt. Oh, interesting. And similar images around the edge. So the thought was that there may have been intended to be sort of equivalent New Testament type scenes going around Duke of Norfolk's tomb. But he hadn't finished the work by the time he gets arrested. Because uh, at the end of Henry VIII's reign, the Duke of Norfolk and his son, the Earl of Surrey, both get arrested. And at that point, the tomb construction has had to be put on hold for a bit because Thetford Priory has been dissolved and Framlingham Parish Church isn't big enough. So they're actually in the process of enlarging the church to be able to fit the tombs in because they're the Dukes of Norfolk and they've got enough money to do that. <laughs> um, but obviously that all gets put on hold because the Duke of Norfolk is in prison for all of Edward VI's reign. A little hiccup there in the plan. Yeah. So when he uh, is released from prison, uh, the work kind of restarts, but he dies not long after his release. He's around for a little bit, sort of first year or so of Mary's reign. And so then the work is being finished off in the mid-1550s, sort of 20 years after it was started. And so what we see is Fitzroy's tomb seems to have been the least completed when the work got disrupted. And so instead of carrying on with the original plan, they seem to have shifted and put on these heraldic panels which match the heraldic panels on the tomb that's being built for the wives of the fourth Duke of Norfolk and intended for the fourth Duke of Norfolk, except he also gets arrested and then executed for treason. Wow. I, where was Fitzroy's body while they're constructing his tomb? Because obviously it wasn't inside of it, was it? They weren't building around. How does that work? Bodies and, and chest tombs is an interesting thing because they sometimes contain the body inside the tomb, but not always. Sometimes the body is in a vault with the tomb above it. And particularly if, you're, if your tomb isn't finished yet, you may bury the body in a vault already and then construct the tomb above it. Occasionally there's intentions to relocate people once you've finished your plan for particularly if you're having a tomb and maybe a chapel around it and it's not been finished okay so Fitzroy I believe is just he's buried at Thetford Priory um before his tomb is built I do not know if he got relocated the Framlingham Church uh I do know that the third Duke of Norfolk they opened I can't remember if it's the tomb or a vault under the tomb, but something got opened in the 19th century and they found more than two bodies. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, but I don't think, as far as I'm aware, they didn't conclusively identify them. I think people think that the third one might be the first Duke of Norfolk. But if I remember correctly, that's not been 100% proved. Oh, what a tough area to study with so many unknowns. And obviously it's difficult these days because where in the past 
we get various stories of people who just open up tombs and vaults. Right. Either during building works or out of curiosity. I think it's um, uh, Catherine Parr that gets, she gets, her tomb is opened up lots and people are taking souvenirs of her hair. Right. But today, you wouldn't do that. You know, the process of, within the Church of England today of getting permission to do an exhumation within a church, it just wouldn't happen that you could go into a parish church today and open up a tomb or a vault to check who's there and to find out who they are. Um, it's, it's really hard to get that position, that permission. Um, obviously, some vaults, sorry, vaults here can mean slightly different things. Some are accessible rooms where maybe it's slightly easier to get in and you can see a coffin and sometimes it has an identifying name on. Uh, But it's just so much harder. So we're often reliant on kind of people's accounts from the 19th century when they were going around opening up and sort of going, oh, hey, and I hear I found a tomb and (laughs) I found a coffin in it and it had a nameplate on it. So I reckon that it's this person. Or, you know, we opened it up and had a look to see what was in there and whether they had an injury and it's just to a modern kind of sensibilities, like the way they're writing about these uh, tomb openings and exhumations is actually quite shocking. So nonchalantly. Yeah, really. Um, and yeah, just sort of very much from a sense of curiosity, but I, I think we would probably see a quite a lack of respect, I think, in the way that they're treating the remains that they're finding. Oh, hey, it's Rebecca here. I'm sorry to interrupt the show. I just want to quick do a shout out to all of my patrons. And if you love the show, you want to hear more of it, want to show your support, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash tutors dynasty. Click become a patron to find out more info. We had some cool stuff coming up. So let's get back to the show. Speaking of lack of respect, the one that I think of the most is the tomb of Henry VIII. What happened? Why does he not have the magnificent tomb that he expected to have? I mean, the short answer is because it wasn't finished when he died. So just like many other people in the country, he had the problem that if it's not done by the time that you're died, you die, you have no control over the process going forwards. Uh, so he says in his will that it is almost made his tomb and he wants it to be completed but Edward VI doesn't get round to doing that uh, some elements is down, it is down to religious change so Henry VIII originally envisaged his tomb having a chantry altar with it obviously as Edward, as we go through Edward VI's reign and we get the sort of intensity of the Protestant Reformation increasing and chantry chapels are being uh, dissolved, that that gets ditched. Even though, you know, for, even though it's his father, the altar, the priest, they stop paying to have a priest say masses for Henry VIII. Otherwise, Edward VI is still overseeing a country that has economic problems. Um, through this period, you've got wars going on with Scotland. You've got sort of through the period with uh, Edward Seymour and with the rebellions going on 
around the country and issues around inflation and debasement of currency. And it's an element which you probably just can't afford <laughs> uh, what's left to do on right. his father's very elaborate team. So he kind of leaves it as a kind of, in his will, he's kind of like, and you know, sought out my father's tomb. Mary has issues sort of over her relationship with her father, over, you know, religion as she sees it versus what he did to the church. So it's kind of not entirely surprising that nothing really happens uh, under during her reign. And then Elizabeth actually looks into finishing the tomb. Uh, there's a report where people do a survey for Lord Burley and sort of come back with a report on what would be needed to finish off the tomb. There's evidence that some material is taken to Windsor to do some work, but it's not completed. And then, of course, after her death, you're into the Stuarts. The connection here is getting further and further away in terms right. of drive to do it. And when you hit the Civil War, they need money during the Civil War, and Henry VIII's tomb has a lot of metal so his effigy it's not carved out of stone it's uh gilded metal i can't imagine <laughs> i think i think they refer to it as brass at the brasses at the time oh, wow. um i don't know the exact metal composition but it basically it gets melted down we think to be used or sold off to be used to fund the armies during the civil war mm, and from shame. that point onwards it's just getting more and more neglected and eventually in the early 19th century what is left of the tomb gets taken apart and the black touchstone sarcophagus gets reused uh, for Nelson's memorial. Henry VIII himself had reused it because it was supposed to be Wolsey's sarcophagus first. Oh wow. I love these stories how it ties everything in together and it's a shame that Henry VIII doesn't have a tomb to visit. Uh, he just seems like such an iconic monarch of England that he should have one. But maybe if he did, it would probably get vandalized a lot or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's actually one of the interesting things when you look start looking at um, the tombs, not just, I mean, obviously Henry VIII is a very high profile example, but not everyone that you think would have a tomb has one. Mm, give us an example. Um, well, I'm just thinking, so it's this very expensive item, so obviously the people who have the, the very elaborate tombs are people who are of high status, they have money, but then if you sit down with a list of Tudor noblemen and start going, oh, I wonder where their tomb is, you'll find a lot where they just aren't there. So uh, Henry VIII doesn't have a tomb, and uh, Charles Brandon doesn't have a tomb. It's another big figure of Henry VIII's reign. And to be honest, it's always it's actually almost easier to start listing the ones that do. <laughs> and some some of that is obviously down to the dissolution of the monasteries. If you're looking at your kind of earlier 16th century and late 15th century tombs, some of that is loss at the dissolution. So they would have had a tomb. And there are a few like Henry VIII's tomb which get lost at a later date. But there are definitely people who just uh, don't have tombs. And thinking about it, my favourite one 
is uh, well, there's two favourite ones. The uh, William Blount, sorry, William Blunt, uh, Lord Mountjoy. He uh, writes his will and he gives a huge list of people that he wants to have a tomb built for by his executors because he says he's been negligent in providing tombs. Well, that's an um, interesting phrase to use. <laughs> and so he asks for his own tomb and he wants a better tomb for his father and his brother and he wants tombs for his third wife and possibly his fourth wife and his first wife her father was supposed to move her but he never did so he wants a tomb for her and I haven't tried to track all of them but I certainly believe no one's ever identified a tomb even for Lord Mountjoy himself oh my gosh I I don't know what (laughs) I'm picturing Oprah saying you get a tomb and you get a tomb (laughs) he's like naming all these people he wants to make tombs for like it's but it's also all people that he could have done it himself and he hasn't. And uh, Thomas Gray, the second Marquis of Dorset, is similar in that his will says that he wants his executors to carry out the request from his father's will. So his father had asked for a chapel and a tomb for his parents 29 years earlier. And Thomas Gray hasn't done it. And so in his will, he's saying, and can my executors now take care of doing what I hadn't done for my father? <laughs> I didn't want to do this, so you guys can take care of it now. <laughs> wow. I am, and I'm curious, too, um, Kirsten, when you go to visit tombs, there's got to be something that draws you in to want to visit particular places or tombs. What pulls you in? What is that trigger for you where you go, I really need to go see this and this is why I want to see it? Gosh, I would say it's a whole mix of um, different issues. Sometimes it will be a particular person where I'm really interested in them as a person and I know they've got a tomb, so I want to go see them. Uh, Sometimes it will be a particular church where I know that there's a, a particularly large collection of memorials in one place uh so you know you're going to be able to go see several very grand tombs sort of in a single chapel and so you get the kind of whole dynastic um element to it uh sometimes though to be honest it's just that i am in the area and there is a church that i've not been to before and i just want to go see (laughs) what their teams look like you're so fortunate to be near these places because there are so many of us who would love to see them so for those of us who want to see them but we can't travel to the uk or we're not close enough what options do we have other than just looking at images online a lot of the time images online are the only option really and they are you know it's it's better these days obviously a lot more people put images online and compared with not that long ago where you would have been not had many at all uh your problem that you tend to have is that certain tombs are more photographed than others you know they're more famous they're easier to get to some of these tombs are in tombs are in churches that aren't open all the time some have been completely closed down so it's harder to find images for those or Often, infuriatingly, people will always take the image from the same angle. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> like one element of the team really well, but like you'll never see sort of the foot end or something. Yeah, that so is you don't frustrating. Necessarily get the the full picture. Another thing to look at would be antiquarian accounts. So this is kind of from the seventeenth century through the nineteenth century. You have people who maybe they're writing a history of a particular cathedral or possibly uh, a county might be getting written about and they will go into quite a lot of detail in tombs because there was a lot of interest at that time in memorials so they take the time to write about them and occasionally they do sketches as well. Uh, The descriptions can be a little bit wordy (laughs) to try and understand what they're trying to say. Uh, The advantage of those sorts of documents it's a practical advantage which is a lot of them have now been digitized and can be found online via books and so forth uh and the other advantage is that they capture the tombs before the 19th century because 19th century in england saw a lot of church reordering going on there was a lot of a drive to increase seating and as a result, tombs were moved around because they felt that, sort of, in terms of the sort of theological thinking at the time, that the tombs were in the wrong place of the church where they shouldn't be because they're detracting from the religious worship or they're getting in the way of seating. So stuff gets relocated. Uh, Salisbury Cathedral is quite impressive for this, actually it's the late 18th century, they take tombs from all around the church and neatly line them up under the arcades in the nave which is very striking visually but it's not telling you where the tombs were originally if you go to see it now, but if you go look at some of the older descriptions from before the work you can find out where they were originally, Uh, they also rebuild some of them so uh, John Cheney's tomb, which I mentioned, the effigies are on a chest which was constructed in the 18th century. Uh, and you lose uh, the Earl of Northumberland's tomb at Beverly Minster used to have a freestanding canopy, which has now been lost. So there's all these kind of bits and pieces where if you just look at the images or if you get the chance, you just go into the church, you can't assume that what you're seeing is what the people wanted back when the tomb was being built so that's where this antiquarian sort of documents that really comes in handy in trying to understand how they used to be like and it's something that you don't necessarily have to be able to get over to England to be able to see those documents yeah that's a great tip thank you Speaking of burials and maybe different kinds of burials, and I know you kind of focus maybe a little bit more on the tombs, have you been to St. Peter at the Tower and visited the burials there at all? And and if you have, how would you say the feeling is there compared to some of these other places that you've been? I haven't been recently. I have been, but not for a few years. Uh, I think it's quite different, the burials of people who've been convicted of treason obviously they are given a burial place most of them at St Peter but there's no there's no real drive from 
Henry VIII, obviously being the main one responsible for their deaths, uh, to commemorate them there. So you don't find tomb chests on the whole for people convicted of treason. They, I think their names are recorded at St. Peter at Vincula, uh, but it, their families often don't necessarily want to be paying for commemoration for someone who's been convicted of treason because it's not really reflecting well on your family and your own career. There are a few memorials out there to people who were convicted of treason. Some of them are put up later. So there is a memorial to Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey, who gets executed by Henry VIII, but it actually dates from the early 17th century and was erected by one of his sons, the Earl of Northampton, goes in at a later date and puts that tomb up. And interestingly, the fourth Duke of Norfolk should have had a tomb, and there is a tomb which has the effigies of his wives on with a gap in the middle, which was supposed to have his, his effigy in it. Oh. And his will actually, he has a will, and it makes a reference to having his effigy done as well. But there wasn't, nobody seems to have had the drive to actually go back and do that in his case. <laughs> Even the Earl of Northampton was his brother and puts in a tomb for his father, but doesn't put one, it doesn't go back and finish um, the tomb for the Duke of Norfolk. Mm. So it, it's rare to see the same level of commemoration for the... Uh, I so wish everybody knows what a Thomas Seymour fanatic I am. And I so wish I know if he had survived, let's say he didn't get arrested for all of that. If he had survived or just have this feeling, he would have the grandest of all tombs just <laughs> over the top. <laughs> I can just like lots of gold, you know, he would be wearing all of his garter stuff. Um, and of course he would have a, a you know, a, probably a shared tomb with Catherine Parr too, because that would make him look good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't make him sound very well. Do I? <laughs> uh, I mean, you make him sound like a Tudor nobleman, to be honest, yeah. because that's a lot. Of their, that's a lot of their concerns. You know, what shows their status? What shows their um, lineages and their good marriages? He would have really fit in with the Howards had he married Mary. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten, I'm curious. Now, we've kind of gone over every little piece of this topic, but I'm sure I'll end up having other questions later that I want to ask, and maybe we'll just have you back for a round two. But so far in your research, what has been your favorite tomb? Gosh. Right. You don't have to think about that one for a little moment. It's like picking a favorite child. It really is. Um, I'm going to say Henry Neville, fifth Earl of Westmoreland. Uh, he's probably not someone that people know particularly for his career. Uh, his tomb is all the way up, I think it's in County Durham. It's near Raby Castle. Uh, but the reason I like it is that it is made of wood, which is relatively unusual uh, to have the entire chest effigies and everything are carved still in incredible detail uh but all in wood and there's not very many examples out there uh similar to that that's amazing when did he live uh so he dies in i think he's one of the mid 
16th century ones, I believe. Oh, he was 16th century. It just seems odd, yeah, for it to be wood. Yes, so it's unusual as well because wood you might associate with a material that you use if you can't get stone or if it costs too much to transport stone or alabaster. And obviously he is quite far north in England, but there are other earlier tombs from his family in the same church and they are not made of wood. So clearly it was possible to get more traditional uh, (laughs) materials there and he just didn't. And he died in 1562, by the way. And uh, he had a... We know the name of the sculptor as well. It's a man called John Tarbiton. That's a great name. That's all we know about him. Oh, man. (laughs) So he's sort of going back to your first questions about who's making these tombs. You know, here's a guy that all we know is that he made the Earl of Westmoreland's tomb and a couple of other tombs at a similar time. And otherwise we would... Probably never have heard of him. Right, he'd just be lost to history. Yeah. Well, now that I know your favorite one, now I'm very curious, as your list is probably ever-changing with the more places that you visit, who is at the top of your wish list right now to see? I would like to go and see the Lunt tombs over in Worcestershire, which is because I've been doing some reading on them recently, and... Elizabeth Norton, I think, has she come and spoken to you about things? Oh, definitely, yes. She's been on your podcast and she did some work on uh, the Blunt tubes, relatives of Bessie Blunt, Elizabeth Blunt, Henry VIII's mistress, and they have some late 16th century cadaver tombs, uh, which are also fairly unusual, and I haven't been to see them, and I have family who live in the area, so I really have no excuse not to go over okay. and have a look. Hang on. Cadaver tombs? <laughs> you're going to you're gonna have to explain that a little bit because I have a visual in my head and I don't know if it's right. <laughs> so one thing that you get with tombs is you'll sometimes have an image of the deceased but kind of in death. So either they're in a shroud or they're actually skeletal. And you'll see this sometimes with clergy tombs will have this as their actual effigy to do with their religious beliefs about how they want to be presented to the world. Uh, It's about kind of acknowledging your own mortality. And they happen pre-Reformation because they're supposed to inspire onlookers to reflect on their mortality and pray pray for the dead. And there's a famous one is Alice Chaucer's tomb, which is in Oxfordshire at UL. Um, And she has a cadaver tomb. But then there's these sets in Worcestershire from the late 16th century, which obviously is uh, post-Reformation. But that imagery of death, uh, it's often called and memento mori images, is still around because even though intercessory prayers aren't really uh, uh, acceptable anymore. People are still encouraged to reflect on their own mortality under sort of Protestant theology. So it's still an acceptable image. And when Elizabeth uh, Norton wrote about this, she the fact that the Blunt family still have Catholic um, 
Um, so in their case, it's, you know, she writes about, is there an element of like, it's imagery that's generally still acceptable, but also has a particular meaning for them uh, because of their Catholic beliefs. <laughs> Kirsten, this has been such an enlightening episode today. I'm so appreciative that you came on and I want you to let people know where they can find your website that is just chock full of this kind of history. So I have a website, which is com, which is a little bit of a pain to spell. <laughs> and I post various pictures of tombs up there when I get the chance. Uh, basically, I'm working my way back through tombs that I've visited sort of through my research or just out of interest and being aware that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't get to come over to England to look at them. I'm trying to uh, gradually put some of my photos up there so people can have a look at them and read a bit about the tombs. And I'll sometimes stick things on Twitter or Instagram as well, kind of like as sort of one-off smaller snapshots with less written about them. And I love those snapshots, too. I love looking at them and looking at the details. So thank you for tweeting those. I'll include the link to your website and to you on Twitter and other social media as well in the show notes. Dr. Kirsten Clayton Yardley, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me back. It's been great fun. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to our newest patrons, Cami R., Amy R., and Julie S., and if you didn't see the news on social media yet, any existing patrons, as well as new patrons on Patreon in the month of October will receive exclusive access to a Zoom talk on Anne of Cleves by Anne biographer Heather R. Darcy. Also, the holidays are near and now's the time to pop into my merchandise shop. Go to TudorsDynasty.com and click on Shop in the menu. Up next on Ask the Expert... Melusina with Christine Morgan. Oh, I can't wait to hear this one. Thank you so much for listening. And Jack, put on your pants. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 